Good morning. You are listening to KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the World Wide Web at KPOO.com. This is Prison Focus Radio. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. It's going to take people who are willing to fight, not people who want to negotiate with the enemy. Deal with 
All right, beautiful people, you are tuned in to KPOO San Francisco 89.5. This is Prison Focus Radio, and I'm your host, Nube Brown. We are going to continue our conversation with Joka Hashima Jinsai, the author of Indictment of the State and its Prison Industrial Slave Complex, Concept by Abdul Olubala Shakur. We have only made it to, or only, but we are on page 10, and I'm going to read the second count before we get into our conversation with Hashima. But as always, I do want to read the very last paragraph of the preamble, uh, which just really sets the tone again for this continued conversation around unpacking this indictment of the state and its prison industrial slave complex. Also, I want to remind you, you can pick up this book at Amazon.com, as well as other books in the library of uh, Joka Hashima Jinsai and Abdul Olubala Shakur. Here is the last paragraph of the preamble. If there is to ever be any confidence in the integrity of the mechanisms of governance and public safety, the system itself must be indicted, its structural corruption exposed, and alternative forms of social organization explored as a surer means of our collective security. Joka Hashima Jinsai. All right, I am going to read uh, I think I'm going to be just, excuse me, reading an excerpt of the indictment of count two, just to, again to set us on uh, the next uh, phase of this um, conversation. Indictment count two. Intentionally creating a system in California Youth Authority, CYA, and private youth facilities to develop ultraviolent, sexually abusive, hypervigilant, educationally underdeveloped young people, predominantly new African, Latino, and poor, to fuel both youth and adult recidivism and incarceration rates. Wow, what an indictment. This empirical and case study evidence demonstrates CDC small r, in conjunction with judicial, legislative, and corporate partners, are presiding over the systemic criminalization and imprisonment of underprivileged children and intentionally hardwiring their core psychology to reoffend, often violently, as a matter of course, then releasing them back into communities with no education, vocational or job prospects, knowing full well they will do what the state trained them to do, survive by any means necessary. To fully understand the scope of count two of the indictment, we must analyze the process and purpose of these acts and omissions to clearly illuminate their criminal intent. Survival in new African, Latino, poor, and other oppressed communities in the U.S. are a study in psychological stress, perpetual socioeconomic uncertainty and insecurity, and genuine fear. Fear of police, violent death, hunger, homelessness, joblessness, eviction, child neglect, drug addiction, domestic violence, etc., giving rise to constant assaults on the nervous equipment and neurological chemical development of children in these communities. The unfortunate 
but not unexpected result is most children in these communities suffer from psychological disorders and structural alterations in the distinct physiology of their brains, which drastically reduces impulse control and impedes rational thought. Manifestations of these psychological and neurological injuries in highly policed and socially contained communities have often run contrary to the, quote, law, many times with conjunction, in conjunction with prohibited survival activities and misguided attempts at social empowerment, like drug trafficking, gang activity, etc. All too often, these children land in juvenile hall and ultimately child prison, known in this state as the California Youth Authority, or CYA. It is here in CYA and similar youth penal systems across America where the process of warping these children's minds for the implicit economic and political gain of the department and its partners becomes overtly criminal. Definitively addressing the underlying socioeconomic disparities in underclass communities, or at least providing comprehensive treatment for the mental damage inflicted on these children by the current order of property relations, has never been considered by the state as a serious alternative to imprisoning children. The U.S. is one of the only industrialized Western nations which has not signed the U.N. Rights of the Child Treaty, which prohibits the imprisonment of children, and California CYA is a prime example of why the treaty exists. The institutions which comprise the CYA, like NELIS and YTS, Youth Training System, are much more violent and predatory than adult institutions, and youth consigned to them are trained to be as violent as their environment in order to simply survive. Corporal punishment, the use of restraint chairs, the use of solitary confinement, and non-consensual psychiatric medication, often in conjunction with restraints, are common practices in CYA facilities. These state-sponsored torture techniques have the objective effect of maximizing the psychological and antisocial impact of the conditions in the CYA facilities themselves. It is the assessment of our analysis that the very policy foundations of CYA and youth correctional facilities, the way they are structured, run, and managed by design, produce ultraviolent, socially undeveloped human time bombs which are knowingly released back into the community with no educational or vocational development prospects, certainly no therapy or counseling, and no hope other than what the state has taught them in these institutions. In CYA, there are only two types of prisoners, predators and prey. You either fight to get and maintain your, quote, respect, or you become someone's case, a submissive, who pays for protection with whatever he or she has. This servitude includes, in some cases, vile sexual submission, where the bodies and minds of these children are subjected to even more debased forms of torture, rape. According to the 2008-2009 California Justice Statistics 
statistics report on incarceration, the sexual assault rate in CYA was 9.6%, three times higher than that in adult prisons. However, it was the Attorney General's belief that the number of sexual assaults in male youth facilities could be significantly higher since female prisoners were six times more likely to report rape by fellow wards or staff than their male counterparts. The resultant physical and psychological damage for both victims and, in the case of child perpetrators, aggressors, from HIV exposure to acute emotional and psychological trauma bode ill for behavior after release. Hypervigilance, bordering on manic paranoia, becomes the primary mode of thought for these children under the department's stewardship. Carrying a weapon becomes the survival norm as essential to life in the minds of these youth as breathing. Gang life in CYA institutions often meant continued life, and concentrated racism is enforced by the very arrangement of these facilities, all with the full knowledge and consent of staff. According to CYA custody counselor R. Rodriguez's testimony in People v. Colbert in 2004, the California Youth Authority Authority boasted a 91% recidivism rate, and these recidivism levels had been the norm for years. According to his testimony, educational and vocational development of wards was a far-removed consideration among CYA staff as their primary concern was to secure incarceration and violence management. Their methods prove their criminal intent. Youth correctional staff in CYA facilities routinely designate places called blinds where children can fight one another and staff don't have to intervene and do unnecessary paperwork. In other cases, staff have sponsored the blood sport, like the infamous Friday night fights staff held with young wards at Paso, pitting rival wards against one another in after-hour fights, arranged on staff's fight cards. When wards did not cease fighting when staff called round over, they would beat the non-compliant children or child into submission with a wooden mace. Drugs, Alcohol, tobacco, and other contraband are routinely introduced by staff to select child prisoners to reward enforcement of staff dictates, or simply for money. In spite of tacking an R for rehabilitation to the end of CDC, genuine attempts to intervene and develop these children to their ultimate potential in a clean, safe environment are non-existent in juvenile corrections. The very idea of CDC small r providing genuine rehabilitation is in fact a running joke amongst prisoners. Educational and vocational programs are underfunded, understaffed, and outdated. Educational and vocational programs are marginalized in favor of incarceration-only policies on the ground. The corrections department is fully cognizant of the nature and structure of the system it put into place. It is a genius, if insidious, Equation. The CCPOA, the California Correctional Peace Officers Association, is the largest and most powerful lobbying force in the state, and its members have unrestrained power over how youth and adult correctional institutions are run. They subject children within these institutions deliberately during the formative years of their brains to these brutal and abusive environments for years at a time most of them already psychologically damaged, and warp their minds beyond recognition. 
They then release them back into society, ill-equipped to navigate social life and uneducated beyond the rewiring of their minds provided by this, quote, prison training, YTS, Youth Training System, knowing full well they will resort to the indoctrination to survive in U.S. capitalist society. When newly released youth offenders follow this predictable training and reoffend, prison industrialists and their partners in law enforcement, political office, and mass media will point to these youth and extol why imprisonment is the only sure cure for, quote, violent criminals, totally suppressing the fact that they've painstakingly cultivated these youth to do just this. The department conveniently washes their hands of their own culpability in one tragedy after another with the tears of the victims and offenders' families alike. They conscientiously gather that same anger and resentment in society with the aid of mass media and heap it on the heads of their unwitting tools, former prisoners, with one hand and with the other, they dip deeper into the purses and pockets of taxpayers for more of their dollars to secure higher salaries, hire more guards, build more prisons, to have more prisoners, to justify the need for even more tax dollars from the general fund. A self-perpetuating racketeering enterprise involving acts of and threats of assault, murder, kidnapping, gambling, trafficking, controlled substances and people, financial institution fraud, sexual exploitation of children, illegal payments to labor organizations, criminal influence in legislation like ALEC, undue criminal influence in political affairs like the CCPOA, all built on the backs, blood, and broken minds of thousands of children. Through these illegal acts and omissions, CDC Small R maintains the prison industrial slave complex's imperative to perpetuate and expand itself at the expense of already besieged communities and public safety. Those responsible for the development of this criminal enterprise, CDC Small R, have eluded culpability because they've succeeded in duping the nation into becoming unconscious co-conspirators in the dehumanization and exploitation of children from new African, Latino, Latinx, and poor communities. It must be understood that this is a pattern and practice of criminal conduct within the department based on the vestiges of slavery, Jim Crow law, and an economic ideology stretched in a direct historical line from 1619 and earlier to the present day. An economic ideology so prevalent and widespread that it is now the custom and policy of the department and related institutions encompassing every prison administrator, custody staff, supervisor, staff member and employee enriched in this scheme, making the citation of individual offenders far too voluminous for this document. To be sure, in each case where criminal conduct was exposed in concert, such as prison guards in Corcoran Shoe going on trial for setting up their own blood sport style fights on the shoe yard, then fatally shooting prisoners they lost bets on, prison guards were subsequently acquitted because it was the policy, not them, that was responsible for their actions. And the policy came from Sacramento, the state capital, so they were just following their training. A similar argument made by Nazi-era guards at Auschwitz during the Nuremberg trials. In any case, 
It is the department and state itself responsible for these crimes and every employee involved in the illicit activity. When a psychologically damaged child is intentionally treated like an animal throughout their developmental years and repeatedly told they are a criminal, then does what they were trained by the state to do, the agency which purposely made them that way must be held accountable. Is there any wonder why the recidivism rate in CYA was 91%? Companies like Geo Group, Smith Barney, Mental Health Systems, Walkenhorst, the CCPOA, and so many others are getting richer and more powerful off the tax dollars and votes elicited by this criminal racket, while making certain public safety remains perpetually jeopardized. The youth from these underdeveloped communities have become a means to an end in an economic and political arrangement where children Children are reduced to mere commodities the department can warehouse, train, release, and re-warehouse in prisoner factories whose economic potential is only limited by the number of human commodities they have under their control at any given point. In such a criminal enterprise, the objective acts of torture, suborning rape, assault, gang violence, drug use, drug and human trafficking, truancy and intentional educational underdevelopment under the doctrine of causation, of course, are indictable. That this pattern of racketeering activity is being carried out for financial gain and political influence at the expense of children is particularly heinous. It is our contention that the willful failure, the willful failure to pursue a course of action which would at least limit, if not eliminate, youth criminalization coupled with CDC small r's intentional distortion of the material facts surrounding their culpability in intentionally perpetuating this criminalization resents, resents, represents consciousness of guilt in this criminal enterprise. This level of corruption and intentional criminalization of children constitutes a particularly vile and evil intent on the part of the department's employees and related corporate political interests, much akin to the raising of child soldiers in parts of war-torn Africa. This pattern of racketeering, fraud, and corruption of public institutions stands in direct violation of Title 18, Part 1, Chapter 16, RICO Act. Title 18, S1961-1, A and B, S1344, S1952, S2260, and Title 29, USC, S186. Okay, so as it turns out, uh, we are unable to get that recording conversation with Joka Hishima Jinsai. So we are going to pivot uh, with some things that are are quite important anyway. Uh, first, today is that I am doing this recording. It is September 21st, and it is the birthday of uh, Osagia Feo Kwame Nkrumah, and, um, who was born September 21st, 1909, and then he died April 27th, 1972. He was the first president of Ghana and a founding member of the organization of African unity. Um, and I got a post from Instagram from the Provisional Government of Republic of New Africa 
Free the Land. Today, we honor the legacy of Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, born September 21, 1909, and gained independence for the Republic of Ghana in 1957. We support the acts leading to Ghana's independence. Long live Nkrumah. We are going to take a musical break, and then we are going to spend the rest of the hour uh, talking about and hearing from people talking about, and possibly himself, Dr. Mutulu Shakur, who was denied yet again, I believe this is the ninth time that he has been denied parole, and in this case, compassionate release, even though he only has months to live. I just want to ask a question. Who really cares? To save a world in despair? Who really cares? There'll come a time. There'll come a time. When the world won't be singing. When the world won't be singing Flowers won't grow Flowers won't grow No Bells won't be ringing No bells won't be ringing Who really cares? Who really cares? Who's willing to try? Who is willing to try? Save a world to save a world that's destined to that die. is destined to die. When I look at the world, when I look at the world, it fills me with sorrow. It fills me with sorrow. Little children today. Really gonna suffer tomorrow Really suffer tomorrow Oh, what a shame What a shame Such a bad way to Such live Such a bad way to live oh, Who is to blame? Who is to blame? We can't stop when living we can't Live life for the children. Live life for the children. Oh, for the children. You see, let's let's save the children. Let's let's save all the children. Save the babies.
who's willing to try, yeah, to save our world, yeah, save our sweet world. If you are just joining us, you are tuned in to KPOO San Francisco 89.5. This is Prison Focus Radio. I'm your host, Nube Brown. And of course, that was Marvin Gaye with Save the Children. Um, And we are going to be spending the rest of the hour um, honoring Dr. Matulu Shakur, who is still alive. But we are going to give him his flowers Um, while he is still here, because he has been denied compassionate release, again, with only having a few months to live. So stay with us, and we'll get right into it. All right, for those of you that may not know who Dr. Matulu Shakur is, he is a new African revolutionary and political prisoner, uh, veteran Black Panther Party for Self-Defense member and BLA member. Um, I'm going to read directly from his website, which you can go to at mutuluShakur.com. All right. Dr. Shakur received his ninth parole denial in January 2021. After being diagnosed with life-threatening bone cancer yet denied compassionate release, his lawsuit against the U.S. Parole Commission and the Bureau of Prisons for unjust denials was expedited. We need your support as we pursue all avenues to improve Dr. Shakur's fate. Um, Again, he was just denied compassionate release uh, apparently just a couple of weeks ago. Dr. Shakur has been a federal prisoner since 1986. He has taken full responsibility for his actions, uh, served as a force for good and anti-violence throughout his decades of incarceration, is an elder and has multiple health complications, has a loving family that needs him, that needs him and upon release will continue to inspire people to seek self-improvement through peaceful and constructive means as he has done while incarcerated. I'll just note that this is what makes him a threat. The acts of which Dr. Shakur was convicted some 30 years ago were committed in the context of a movement seeking equal opportunities for black people who it is widely conceded, were suffering catastrophically from disenfranchisement, segregation, poverty, and exclusion from many of the fundamental necessities that make life worth living. Dr. Shakur participated in civil rights, black liberation, and acupuncture health care, all as part of movements of the late 1960s to the 1980s. It was a period of civil conflict in which millions of Americans participated in social movements for justice and freedom. In 1988, Dr. Shakur was convicted of RICO conspiracy, armed bank robbery and bank robbery killings and sentenced to 60 years in prison. At no time did the evidence show that Dr. Shakur killed anyone. At two trials, the evidence indicted others were responsible. Oh, sorry. At two trials, the evidence indicated others were responsible for the deaths 
one of which became a government witness in return for a sentencing deal. So what does that have to do with someone's guilt? So the remaining defendants were acquitted of the murder allegations presented by the government. At the time, Dr. Shakur was a well-known acupuncturist using his skills to address rampant drug addiction amongst young black people. He was a co-founder of the Republic of New Africa movement, participated in presentations to the United Nations on discrimination experienced by black communities throughout the U.S., and by 1970 was a subject of the FBI's illegal COINTELPRO infiltration program that was designed, this is my addition here, was designed to destroy all black liberation movements. All right, Dr. Shakur has accepted full responsibility for the acts that resulted in his conviction and for many years has expressed the deepest remorse for those who were killed and their families, pleading that there is no justification for the loss of life for the victims. For over 25 years, Dr. Shakur has been a leading voice in the black community calling for peace, reconciliation, and healing for the countless lives lost in pursuit of basic justice and human rights. Dr. Shakur has for many years publicly suggested that a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, a TRC, of elected officials, faith-based and community activists and experts be convened to explore racial disparities and how to seriously address these issues through peaceful alternative dispute mechanism, mechanisms utilizing democratic process. And yet, he is a threat. All right, um, we are now going to listen to a, um, there, is a there was a film, um, a short documentary that was created about Dr. Matulu Shakur and his work as an acupuncturist uh, called Dope is Death. And with, along with Dope is Death came, the, the documentary came a podcast. And um, so I am going to read First, what this podcast uh, was about, and there's four episodes in this podcast of the same name, Dope is Death, and I think we're only going to be able to hear one, if only part of, of one episode, and I encourage you to check out the rest at your leisure. All right, so here is the de description of the podcast, Dope is Death. And, um, and for any of you, too, that are recognizing Dr. Matulu Shakur's last name, yes, he is the stepfather of the quite well-known um, hip-hop activist, uh, revolutionary hip-hop rap artist, Tupac Shakur. All right. So by the early 1970s, heroin was flooding the streets of New York City. Black and Puerto Rican neighborhoods like Harlem and the South Bronx were hardest hit. This four-part podcast series explores how Dr. Batulu Shakur, stepfather of the late Tupac Shakur, along with members of the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords, combine, combined community health with radical politics to create the first acupuncture detoxification program in America. Over the course of the 1970s, the Lincoln Detox People's Program became a fixture of hope in the South Bronx and detoxed thousands of people off of drugs. Dope is Death explores why this program was considered a threat to the political and social stability of the United States. 
think about that, people. This <laughs> Dope is Death explores why this program was considered a threat to the political and social stability of the whole United States. All right, sorry. And how its brightest star, celebrated community activist and healer Dr. Matulu Shakur ended up one of FBI's 10 most wanted until he was captured and convicted of RICO conspiracy. <sighs> Today, 34 years later, which is now 36 years later, Dr. Matulu Shakur remains incarcerated, enslaved, a modern day enslaved. Civil rights hero or enemy of the state, Dope is Death dives deep into the history of COINTELPRO and other legal tools that law enforcement can utilize to repress political dissidents. All right. This is episode one of Dope is Death, the podcast. Come on, put the pins in. It's important for us to understand that the struggle for our liberation is a complete process, brother. And which requires of us to be prepared to address the causes of our oppression. In the 1970s, as heroin ravaged New York City, political radicals, including members of the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords, pioneered the use of acupuncture to treat addiction. Dr. Matula Shakur led this movement and founded the first community acupuncture detox clinic in North America. Over a decade later, he was listed among the FBI's 10 most wanted. Montreal-based filmmaker Mia Donovan explores the hidden history of how the Lincoln Detox Program took on the public health care system, Big Pharma, and the war on drugs. Civil rights hero or enemy of the state, Dr. Shakur has been incarcerated for over 30 years. Dope as death, the podcast asks, why is he really still in prison? My students, I was, uh, my student, I don't know what he did after school. <laughs> I have no idea what he did after school. Uh, as, uh, I, I was just a teacher. I'm just a teacher. We are close to as, as far as, as being pioneers together. You understand? That's Mario Wexu. Mario and his father, Oscar, founded the first acupuncture school in North America back in 1970. It was called the Quebec Institute of Acupuncture, and the courses were only offered in French. In 1974, Mario received a call from a man named Matulu Shakur. Matulu wanted Mario to go from Montreal to the South Bronx to teach the Black Panthers and the Young Lords acupuncture to get people off of heroin. Matulu didn't understand French, but was determined to get his doctorate degree so he could be taken seriously and eventually start his own school. Mario and his father were very outspoken about their disdain for Western medicine. Oscar Wexu regularly called out doctors in the press for performing unnecessary surgeries and prescribing too many drugs. So when Mario heard about what was happening in the South Bronx, how people were dying at the dilapidated Lincoln Hospital because of insufficient medical care, and in the streets because of widespread heroin addiction, he wanted to help. The Quebec Institute of Acupuncture offered Matulu Shakur and three of his comrades scholarships. And three years later, in 1977, Dr. Matulu Shakur became one of the first black acupuncturists in America. Matulu's mission was to, was to help people, the black people, 
to, to, to heal themselves, to, to heal themselves with their own, by their own means. So the acupuncture was inexpensive, and anybody he could learn it. It was that hard to learn, and it didn't cost anything to do, and you could heal people. You don't have to depend on, on, on Western doctors who are abusing the people uh, over there in Harlem and the Bronx. They were being abused completely. This unexpected partnership between a Romanian Jewish immigrant from Montreal and a radical black power leader in New York City revolutionized drug addiction treatment. They developed a standardized five-point ear acupuncture protocol that is still used today around the world. Breathe in, exhale. Okay, Walter, turn your head that way like we're looking at that hat. We're at the New York Harm Reduction Educators Clinic in Harlem with Juan Cortez. Juan runs the acupuncture program here at Naira and has been treating people with acupuncture for 14 years now. I'm all right, how are you? Mr. Jones. The Naira Clinic is near Lexington and 125th Street, one of the few areas in Harlem that appears untouched by gentrification. There you go, brother. You get to go, man. Don't try not to tense up when you breathe in. Just try to relax. Breathe in. And exhale. All right? All right. Turn your head for me. Juan doesn't look like your typical acupuncturist. He's wearing a New York Yankees hat, a Nike track suit, and spotless white Nike shoes, and seems a lot younger than his 55 years. We provide different services like auricular acupuncture, Reiki, Tai Chi, aromatherapy, sound therapy, and holistic counseling to people in the community that have been living with HIV, hepatitis, uh, people that are at risk for overdose, people who have a history of incarceration, uh, mostly communities of color, pretty much people that have been disenfranchised and stigmatized. And I've been doing that for 14 years. There you go. Very good, man. When you go like this, all your muscles tense up and it'll hurt when I put the needle. When you just go like this, all your muscles are relaxed so you won't feel it. Okay? There you go. Relax, man. How long have you been doing? Getting the I've been doing this over yes, so about seven, eight years now. Maybe more. Maybe I'll skip it. Are you ready? Because I'm doing drugs right now. And uh, it helps me with a lot of things. It calms my breathing. It calms my heart down. It keeps me relaxed, and it just made me happy. I'm a happy person anyway, and with this, it, it makes me extra happy. Come on, put the pins in. That's Lily. The acupuncture that she is getting is called community acupuncture, which means it takes place in a group setting among peers, seated on chairs facing each other in a circle. Addiction can be a very alienating experience. Community acupuncture aims to bring people together and remind them that they are not alone. Okay, sir. One, two, three, four. Tilt your head up a little bit. Okay. Breathe in. Exhale. Breathe in. All right, breathe in for me. And exhale. Let's do it together. All right. A lot of the people that come through these doors, a lot of people have been traumatized their whole life. They've been abused physically, some sexually, some emotionally. Uh, their only, their only um, experience with human contact is one of pain for a lot of people. So um, when they come through the doors and you're actually connecting with them and you're like, um, 
you're having human contact not to induce pain but to induce healing that's very powerful this, this helps me with my anger management because Lily let me talk this helped me with my anger management and I found out through taking anger management courses that it's not anger I feel it's hurt so it hurts me manage the hurts that uh, I have within and keeps me off of um, away from alcohol and illegal, you know, substance. Right, you don't have to medicate yourself anymore. This is your natural medicine here. Yes, yes, yes. Come on, hit me up, man. I'm ready yes, to Look up a little bit. There you go. When I was at the clinic, I witnessed people coming in and looking very agitated, ornery, and restless. Once they were seated, one would insert pins or needles into specific points on the ear to relieve stress, anxiety, and withdrawal symptoms associated with drug use. Imagine the ear like an upside-down human fetus, and the acupuncture points on the ear correspond to the body parts of the fetus shape, with the earlobe representing the head. Within minutes of receiving the needles, their bodies would relax, their eyes brighten, and they would start engaging with those around them. It's a powerful thing to witness. Juan himself struggled with addiction and credits acupuncture for saving his life. I think that I was a little bit more open to, to Eastern um, medicine and acupuncture because of my um, my love of martial arts since a, since a young man. And so when I we started to receive acupuncture, I just just put it connected it to that. It's just the mind, body, spirit thing, and I totally embraced it. So altogether, I used drugs for 27 years. Pretty much heroin and crack cocaine became my choices of drugs. Everything that goes with the street was in my life. So the drugs, the violence, the stigma, the incarceration, right? The overdoses, everything, everything was that. The low self-esteem. Um, society told me I was no good so often. Like, everywhere I went, you're like a junkie. You're no good. You should be incarcerated. You know what? You should all be dead. I started to believe that, so I didn't care anymore. Like, why should I care when nobody else cares? I didn't, I didn't like being uh, in that life. I felt I had, like, no escape. I felt that I, felt that I was a prisoner in my own self. Like, that I was doing drugs against my will. It's kind of crazy for me to say that, but it's, it's like so true. It's so true. Like you feel you have no other option. And as much as, as much as you want to escape, it's like if you're drowning and, and, and every time that you try to gasp for air, you just swallow more water. And, um, and it's a horrible life. It was acupuncture uh, and learning about Tai Chi and Qigong and how to do deep breathing and also being surrounded by people who supported me and um, that I was able to change my life. This acupuncture protocol is currently being practiced in over 600 clinics across the U.S. and in more than 85 countries. It's widely known as NADA, for the National Acupuncture Detoxification Association, which was incorporated in 1985 by Dr. Michael Smith. 
but most people don't realize that radical activists from the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords, who were the Puerto Rican counterpart to the Black Panthers, actually developed the technique. I didn't really know the true history behind it, which was that one of the senior counselors, and I was telling them about acupuncture and stuff, and she came and she said, do you know how this really started? And she was like, it was the, it was the Black Panthers and the Young Lords. They, they actually were the first ones to bring acupuncture to the South Bronx. In November of 1970, revolutionary people moved into the hospital. They took over for the benefit of the people. The program was developed through the coalition of the Young Lords Party, Black Panther Party, and Atrium, which is the Health Revolutionary Unit Movement. And it was felt that there was a need to deal with the addict on the street and to use a different approach uh, with the problem of, of addiction in our community. That was a Lincoln detox worker speaking to the press back in 1971. At that time, methadone maintenance was becoming the standard treatment for heroin addiction. But the Lincoln Detox Program wanted a non-chemical treatment for addiction. They wanted their community off of all drugs. As they used to say, addicts don't make good revolutionaries. 50 years later, methadone maintenance continues to be the standard medical treatment for both heroin and opioid addiction. Methadone itself in 1970 is not a new drug. What was novel was its use as a maintenance drug meaning that someone who used to use heroin several times a day indefinitely could use methadone once a day indefinitely. They would be maintained on it, not detoxified with it. That's Dr. Samuel Kelton Roberts, Jr. He's a professor and historian at Columbia University, and he's been studying the history of drug treatment in New York City for over a decade. If you're coming from a place that is very critical of federal, state, and local government and how it treats black people, brown people, poor people, Asian people, you understandably might come to regard methadone maintenance with some suspicion because it is regulated and in large part dispensed by the government. Matulu Shakur saw both methadone and heroin as weapons of chemical warfare employed to pacify black political resistance. In 1972, he discovered Chinese medicine while handing out political pamphlets in Chinatown with his comrade Nobuko Miyamoto. She brought him into a community center where there was an elderly Chinese woman practicing moxibustion and acupuncture. Shakur, who was always searching for solutions to problems, was instantly drawn to acupuncture. Here was a non-chemical form of medicine. He thought, what if I bring this to the South Bronx? I visited Dr. Shakur at least a dozen times since 2013, but unfortunately all our requests to interview him for the documentary or this podcast have been denied by the Federal Bureau of Prisons. There are only about five known recorded interviews with Matulu, and most were done before 2001. Here is an excerpt from one such interview. I chose this clip because you can hear how much joy the memories of his work in the community bring him. When the uh, uh, patients or victims would come up, 
we would say, well, listen, we're not going to give you no methadone today, but what we're going to do is massage your feet, we massage your back, and we massage your ears. And what we would use, we're going to use our finger. And so, before we even got needles, we would, people would come up to the Bronx, dope fiends, hardened dope victims, we would massage their ears and massage their hands and their legs, and we would stand there with our fingers in their ears or in the different points, and we'd do deep breathing, and they'd fall right out to sleep and just relax, and then the next day they'd be back for that treatment. And we were detoxifying people off of heroin and cocaine and methadone with acupressure, a lot of love, a lot of commitment to it. And it was some of the most rewarding times of our lives, you know. What Naira has in common with the original program led by Matulu at the Lincoln Detox is their commitment to serving the community's needs. Once a month, Juan's colleague Dimitri invites a variety of holistic health practitioners from all over New York City to the clinic in Harlem. The day we were there, over 50 people were gathered in the small concrete courtyard. The day began with the ritual led by Dimitri where everyone held hands for a moment of gratitude. I felt incredibly moved as I looked around at the diversity of people gathered together as one. We say, how can we reduce the harm of that? How can we reduce the harm of madmen running our world, running our bodies, imprisoning our brothers and sisters, destroying the resources? What resource can we access that is ours, that is in the common, that is in the community, and that is the nature of this? the nature of holding hands, the nature of going out and offering our medicines, a people's medicine, a medicine from our grandmothers, a medicine from our grandmothers. The medicine from our grandmothers is not held by anybody. You don't need a prescription. You don't need a contract. You don't need to have land rights. You don't need to have a writ. What I found in terms of, of the ceremonial aspect is that folks came in hungry for that. So first of all, you have a population that by and large are theists. These are people of God. You have folks who are not welcome in their synagogue, in their church, in their mosque, in the Santeria circle, because of their drug use, because of their, their sex workers, because of their transgender or whatever, or gay or whatever, and they're welcome here. They're welcome here as children of God. I met Juan through one of the original young lords named Walter Bosque. Walter is also featured in the documentary and was the first Puerto Rican acupuncturist in America. Juan fits into this history because he was both healed by acupuncture and now is a healer himself. Matulu wanted to heal drug addicts, or as he referred to them, drug victims, so that they could pick up the struggle and continue to serve the community. Their motto was, each one reach one, each one teach one. One embodies the spirit in the purest sense. The message is still the same about 
about somebody who's oppressed, somebody who's stigmatized, that they're human beings and they deserve the rights that everybody else has. The rights to health, the rights to uh, shelter, the rights to not be uh, harassed, the rights to be able to live your life in peace. That's what we, we teach. We, we, we teach that, um, and that's the same thing that the Young Lords and the Black Panthers and the Collective did in Lincoln Detox. It's been over a year since I visited Naira, and in light of what's happening with social distancing and COVID, I couldn't help but wonder how Juan was managing his work in the community. Wow, that has been a bit of a challenge, but um, just yesterday I did a Zoom group where I, um, I showed people how to give themselves ear massages using the, the five points and stimulating the points. And that was a way of, uh, of uh, some getting some type of benefit as when they can't get the needles, which is something that actually the Mutulu and, and Walter and, and, the, and the collective were doing before they knew how to use needles. Um, we also acknowledge the fact that because of this pandemic that more people are using drugs because everybody's depressed everybody is like isolating and and um it's it's hard on all of us and people are gonna um resort to to um to using more drugs there's a higher risk for overdose you know a higher mental health uh issues so and acupuncture and holistic health is going to be needed more than ever when we get back because now we're going to be dealing with people's post-traumatic stress I think that um, that that this pandemic has showed us how important what we do is even more than before because we always knew it was important, but now now uh, you know I get phone calls from people every day saying, "Hey, when are you gonna open up the acupuncture room? I need my acupuncture," and I have to say, "Hey, I can't. We can't right now, but what we could do is we could do a video where I can show you how to do some." Uh, you know, uh, massaging of your ear and stuff like that. Oh, man, you know, I need my acupuncture. You know, so we're doing the best we can. We're doing the best that we can. In the next episode, we look at how conditions in the South Bronx radicalized a group of teenagers to take action on health care, culminating in the occupation of Lincoln Hospital in 1970. Professor and activist Joanna Fernandez, author of The Young Lords, A Radical History, will walk us through how the activism of the era transformed public health care in New York City. The producers would like to thank Tayimba Jess for allowing us to use an excerpt from his 1992 telephone interview with Matula Shakur from Lompoc Federal Prison for WHBK Radio in Chicago. Excerpts from the documentary film Dope is Death were also featured in this episode. This podcast was produced by I Steal Film, a documentary production company based in Montreal, Canada. The four-part podcast series is based on the documentary feature film Dope is Death, created with the financial participation of the Canada Media Fund and Super Channel Entertainment Network. Written, directed, and hosted by Mia Donovan, with the creative collaboration of sound designer Lynn Trepanier, and story editing and additional writing by Sarah Musgrave. Sound mixed by Simon Bluff, Additional narration by Latif Martin, with music by Ramachandra Borgar. Produced by Mia Donovan and Lynn Trebanier. Supervising producer Katie Mackay. Executive producer Bob Moore. Thank you to Corey Vizos and Samantha Neboshinsky. For more information, visit dopeisdeath.com. All right. And... Here at KPOO San Francisco 89.5, myself representing uh, this program, Prison Focus Radio, California Prison Focus, and San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper. We also want to say thank you so much for this uh, podcast, and uh, 
we, I, I think we will probably um, listen to the next episodes um, as we go along. And um, again, I encourage you to check them out yourself. All right, that is our show. Again, free them all. Free our political prisoners. Call the governor at nine one Governor Newsom at nine one six four four five two eight four one and insist that he grant parole, pardon, or clemency to our uh, caged elders uh, who suffered decades of solitary confinement and who have been caged for over twenty five. Some of them going on over forty years. Get ready for work week with Steve Seltzer. <laughs>